if you look at strength and power exercise that I mentioned earlier that core body temperature is highest in the late afternoon. And what seems to be the case is that strength and power follow the core body temperature rhythm. And that makes sense because if you think about the enzymes that are involved in substrate metabolism of things like glycogen, then they will work faster at higher temperatures. If you think about nerve conduction velocity, then that will be faster at higher temperatures too. That was circadian rhythm expert, Dr. Greg Potter, speaking on time of day and body temperature in context of training speed and power. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle stimulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System in K-Box or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the contact grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to episode 166 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. On the show, we have Dr. Greg Potter. Greg is a former sprint coach. Uh, many of you may remember back if on JustFlySports.com four to five years ago before the podcast, Greg wrote some fantastic Q&A answers to some sprint questions I asked him. He's had a lot of success formerly on the university level as a sprint coach. He wrote an awesome and extensive piece for Brett Contreras' website about sprint coaching. He's now transitioned into work in the health and wellness sector. He has his PhD. He was the former contact director at Human OS. He now works as the chief scientific officer of a health tech startup, and he is doing awesome work on sleep, diet, and metabolic health that's been featured by a number of outlets. Today's show is all, it's about cross, crossing sectors a little bit. It's going to be very much on how do we optimize the health of ourselves and our athletes in this modern world where we are flooded with blue light throughout the day. We have constant food available all hours of the day. We may be forced into particular training schedules that may or may not be optimal for us and all these things that modern life presents to us. And so with that in mind, today's show is all about our own body's clocks, how it impacts our health, metabolism, ability to train, ability to recover, 
Um, it's important to know how to train, definitely. Those are awesome and fun talks, and the majority of talks you're going to get on this podcast. Today's show is all about how to be a better human being on the level of optimizing just our daily function, the way we are designed to operate and train and to help pick up all those, um, you could call them picking up all those 1% by just making better decisions to operate according to our biology. So topics that are addressed on on today's show that Greg will talk, go in depth on are the basics of the circadian rhythm, its impact on nutrition, sleep, training, and metabolism, or fat loss. Uh, Greg also gives plenty of tips and ideas on how to optimize our lives based on our own circadian rhythms. Just good, solid, practical advice on how to get the most out of your daily life and well-being based on our body clocks, whether you're a coach, athlete, or you just want to learn more about your own body, how it works, and how to live and recover just a little bit better. This is an awesome show. So again, it's amazing to have a former sprint coach with so much knowledge who now is doing awesome work as a PhD in the world of just human wellness and these are topics we all can use to grow a little bit better in our own daily practice. That being said, let's get on to episode 166 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast with Greg Potter. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today, man. I, you know, I know you were uh, just not too long ago, you were on Just Fly Sports for writing like a lot of sprint related material and, and Brett Contreras' website and all that. And and here I am later interviewing you for a totally different reason, really. <laughs> Could you talk about a little bit about that transition in your life to, to what you're doing now? Yeah, so I think that I wrote that article for you shortly after my undergrad. And I did my undergrad in exercise science, specializing in exercise physiology at Loughborough University. And while I was there, I worked as a sprints coach and continued that work one year after during my master's degree, which was also in exercise physiology and around that time my focus was largely on nutrition and exercise and how they influence health but also how they influence physical performance and along the way I realized that sleep is very important to health and performance too as are biological rhythms and circadian rhythms specifically so I wanted to add that string to my bow so that my understanding of this stuff was more comprehensive and so that I could therefore better help people but also, I think that at that time, I've been working primarily with athletes, and I've been doing some personal training on the side for several years. And also, between my two degrees in exercise physiology, I worked at the Rugby Football Union for six months in the sports medicine department, primarily doing some work related to injury surveillance and concussion specifically. But during that time, I didn't feel like sports performance was quite my calling, and I thought if I'm going to look back on my career and think about the overall impact of it, then maybe I should transition into the general population and studying those people and how some of these factors affect their health. So I therefore did a PhD at the University of Leeds in sleep and circadian rhythms. And that was looking at a variety of different populations, including the general population in the UK and a group of adults at greater risk for developing type 2 diabetes as well. Sure thing. So uh, first question too, this is, uh, this is probably the most general way to put this, but I, I know, I know you give a, you'll give me a great like practical answer pretty quickly because uh, I'm sure it could just go on in a lot of different directions. But like, mm. so, what is circadian rhythms exactly? Like I know we, uh, people would hear it and say, okay, it's something to do with like how I function during different times of day. But what is it exactly and, and what does it mean to us? Mm-hmm. If we take a step back and think about our evolution, 
then we evolved on the planet and on our planet there's a 24-hour day so there's a repeating light dark cycle every 24 hours and for us to thrive in this environment we needed some sort of biological timekeeping mechanisms that could anticipate and adapt to changes in the light dark cycle and some of the accompanying changes temperature for example so we evolved these biological clocks i'm using the word clocks in inverted commas and what these do is produce rhythmic biological outputs for example the sleep-wake cycle which recurs every 24 hours or the 24-hour rhythm in core body temperature and the purpose of this is to optimize our bodies according to time of day so for we as humans we need to be physically active to get food during the daytime because we're diurnal or daytime active animals and at nighttime we need to rest and recover from all of the burden that physical activity places upon our bodies so one of the types of biological rhythms that our biological timekeeping systems produce are these circadian rhythms which are these rhythmic changes that repeat themselves every 24 hours or so every 20 to 30 hours perhaps and an important point is that these rhythms aren't precisely 24 hours they're typically slightly longer than 24 hours and for that reason they need to be reset each day and the most important time cue in resetting or resynchronizing our biological rhythms with the 24-hour day is the light dark cycle and the problem of course is that we now live these 24 7 lifestyles in which we have artificial light at night, we spend too much of our time indoors during the daytime, we have round-the-clock food access, and because of all these different factors, we're often behaving in a way which is discordant with our biological rhythms, and that can impair our health and performance. So I know that we're going to focus on performance specifically today, and what I'd like to share is that understanding these rhythms and also the importance of sleep does have implications for athletes who want to perform at their best but also adapt to training and generally bring them best selves to the world each day yeah and, and i know you mentioned like i mean how to me the longer i've been doing this and well really i mean even outside of coaching athletes because i mean the, the population i train primarily is like 18 to 22 years old and but the older I get, the more I the more all this stuff in my own training, the more it continually rings true to me. Like when just the health aspect of it, it that starts to if I'm not seeing results or something like that, I think even significantly more than when I was younger, I start to just pay attention to that stuff a lot more. And then I realize how important it is for that population. And so I, I feel like that's too an area where I. Uh, and the coaching community in general, I think there's so many, we talk about like 1% and I know that you had mentioned that in an article you wrote, I think it was either for uh, Brett or for me, or I'm, I'm not sure, but, but like, all, you know, all those little 1% that are there to grab. And I think there's so many little 1% to grab on the health side of things or the, the sleep side of things and, and the way the body times throughout the day and just like, uh, or light and things like that. I think that's all really important to the total equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in terms of so in terms of uh, you know rhythms throughout the day, uh, let's start first. Like, what does that mean for us in eating? Like, and, and you mentioned, I mean, we live in a society where food we have constant access to food. 
this can't be how our ancestors ate, right? Like, <laughs> like it cannot be. So, what does that what does that mean to the average uh, person? I guess athletes specifically, but but what does that mean for us and our health and our well being and how we function? Yeah, I think it actually means quite a lot. In short, and there are various reasons to believe that that's the case. So if we think about our bodies and when the circadian system that regulates our circadian rhythms primes our bodies for certain activities, then our bodies are best set to digest food during the daytime. So if you look, for example, at the immune system, then eating and drinking increases our exposure to many novel pathogens. And interestingly, if you expose other animals, mice, for example, to pathogens during their rest period when they would naturally sleep, then they're much more likely to actually pass away hmm. in due course than if you expose them during their active period when they would naturally be feeding and physically active. So we've got these time of day change in the immune system to optimize our immune function during the daytime. But then also various digestive processes are optimized during the day. So for example, the muscular system that pushes food through our digestive tract is more rapid during the daytime than it is during the nighttime. If you look at the number of calories that somebody will burn after eating, it's higher during the biological morning than it is during the biological evening. And I say biological because when we're thinking about things in terms of the circadian system, what we're interested in is when we are engaging in certain activities according to our biological time, not to the clock time. And this is relevant because at one end of the spectrum we have morning larks and at the other end of the spectrum we have night owls. So at a given time of day, these two extremes might be at completely different biological times, if that makes sense. Mm. And therefore, when I'm going to speak about this concept of the importance of timing of eating, it's important to consider things relative to the timing of the person's own body. Anyway, to carry on about some specifics, our insulin sensitivity, for example, is higher during the daytime than it is at nighttime. And what I'm trying to emphasize is that our bodies are primed for eating during the daytime. And what implications does this have for our health is the question that follows. There have been lots of studies of other animals that have looked at this question. And I won't go into too much detail on those because they're very interesting. But I want to focus on studies of humans since we now have several studies that have looked at this question. And there have been various different cross-sectional studies where researchers will take a snapshot of how people behave in the real world and they'll look at things like when people eat relative to when they sleep and nighttime eating, breakfast skipping and that type of thing. And in general, they tend to report that skipping breakfast associates with negative health outcomes and eating at nighttime also associates with negative health outcomes. But to actually get at this question, we need experiments in which people change the timing of their food access and then we follow up their health over time. And in the last few years, there have been several studies that have looked at this concept of time-restricted eating, which is restricting consumption of all calorie-containing items to a period of 12 hours or less each day. And some of the early studies that looked at this involve dividing participants into two groups. One group had normal eating patterns so if they wanted to they consume breakfast and the other group 
didn't consume any calories until midday or later. And there were two studies specifically by research at the University of Bath that looked at this and were very nicely controlled. And to cut to the chase, what they found is that when lean people skip breakfast, if anything, they tend to consume fewer calories, but they also burn fewer calories such that over the course of the day, there's no difference in energy balance and therefore their body weight doesn't change over the course of several weeks. Mm. The only difference seems to be that their blood sugar regulation in the afternoon is slightly worse. They also did some work looking at obese people and what they found was that similarly they burned fewer calories in the morning, but they also probably consumed fewer calories. Overall, there was no change in body weight when, when people skip breakfast, but what they did find was insulin sensitivity was slightly worse in the afternoon. So these early studies suggested that if anything, this type of time-restricted eating approach might not be a good thing for health. It might not be a bad thing either, but it just didn't have very large effects. More recently, however, there have been several studies that have looked at the consequence of early time-restricted eating. And one way of applying this would be to skip dinner, for example, instead of skipping breakfast. And I know that many people balk at the idea of this because they think this isn't practical, but I just want to touch on the results of a couple of these studies. So one of these studies was published last year, and it looked at adult men who have prediabetes. And these men went through two conditions. So in one condition, they spread out three meals over 12 hours each day for five weeks. And in the other condition, they spread out the exact same three meals each day over a six-hour period, but finished by 3 p.m. So this latter condition was the early time-restricted eating mm -hmm. condition. And what they found was that this type of early time-restricted eating led to better insulin sensitivity, which you would anticipate would over time reduce their risk of developing diabetes, but also lower measures of oxidative stress, and oxidative stress is implicated in aging, for example, but better appetite regulation and a very substantial drop in morning blood pressure too. So this was some preliminary evidence that this type of early time-restricted eating might have many benefits. And they've since published two more studies this year, which largely supported the studies of that initial paper. So one of the studies published this year found that on average, blood sugar levels were a little bit lower over the course of 24 hours when people used this early time-restricted eating. And another study basically found that appetite was again better regulated, but also that during early time restricted, restricted eating, people tended to oxidize more fat, which over time might be a good thing for their body composition. There has been a study this year also that compared early time restricted eating to slightly later time restricted eating in adults who have prediabetes, and they didn't find substantial differences. They basically found that both conditions tended to improve blood sugar regulation, but the early time restricted eating condition did also improve their fasting insulin in the morning. So to summarize those studies, it seems that if people can restrict the period in which they're consuming calories each day, so the period elapsed from their first calories of the day, whether that's a coffee with cream or whether that's breakfast, until the last calories of the day, which is hopefully dinner, then they might experience many of these metabolic benefits, especially if they currently don't have good metabolic regulation. But something I'd like to add is that if you are, for example, an elite athlete and you have very high energy intake requirements, let's say that you're a Tour de France cyclist and you are competing with Tour de France, this type of time-restricted eating might not be for you because you might just find it hard to consume enough calories each day 
but outside of those rare exceptions it seems that if at least people can shift their calorie intakes earlier in the day or at least consume a smaller dinner then they're likely to benefit in many ways yeah sure sure thing so so in short um i it i mean it sounds like i was trying to dissect a little bit the the, the second studies or you were talking about or the latter studies you're talking about but that first study was saying that you probably shouldn't do if you're going to time restrict your eating it should be time restricted at night like you shouldn't eat it should be in the morning that your most of your eating happens like so is that is mm-hmm. that the general guideline or is it leaning towards that if that is what you were to do yeah so i, I would say as a general guideline stick to a six to 12 hour caloric period that finishes at least two hours before you plan to go to bed but earlier than that is probably better So I wouldn't eat as soon as you wake up in the morning necessarily, especially if you wake up to an alarm clock. But let's say that you've waited until half an hour after you would naturally wake up if you have woken to an alarm clock. Then you can start consuming calories and thereafter maybe a six to 12 hour caloric period. And if, for example, you have a family and you want to have dinner with your family, then just think about ways to reduce your calorie intake at that late meal and reapportion those calories earlier in your day and i think that you're likely to benefit that way sure yeah i think a lot of people when they're like okay i'm going to do you know time restricting or intermittent fasting i mean is there is there a difference between those two terms by the way semantically yes (laughs) something that's very clearly it's not very clearly explained much of the time the distinction that i make is that time restricted eating is all calories within a period of 12 hours or less each 24-hour cycle, whereas intermittent fasting is periodic use of a longer fast, by which I mean a fast of at least 24 hours. Oh, okay. But it's not necessarily used in the scientific literature that way. Got it, got it. Okay, so time. So if I'm going to do time-restricted eating, um, now I'm trying to think of what I was going to... Uh, okay, so I, I do know that... Um, I do know that oh, it's almost like regardless of what I've heard on some level that I have heard that you shouldn't be eating within a few hours of bedtime. Uh, what, like what, I mean, I, I guess that's maybe a good principle just as well, but what, what does that do if you, if I'm eating like an hour or eating snacks like an hour before uh, my bedtime or something like that, like from a metabolic perspective? Yeah. So there are two ways of answering this question really. One is to say that if you, restrict your calorie consumption earlier in the day then you'll probably also inadvertently change the composition of many of the foods that you consume because most people if they're sat in front of the tv at night snacking don't eat the best quality food and also most people don't have wine at breakfast (laughs) so by reducing late night or early evening calorie intake you're likely to also improve your diet in that way but If we assume that the composition of the food that you consume is the same, whether you're consuming it early or late, then having it late in the day is going to do a few things. So one, each time we consume calories, we have to, of course, digest and metabolize those calories. And that requires energy, that process. It requires more energy if we digest and metabolize those calories early in the day. But because it requires energy, our core body temperature tends to go up. And what we want is a nice high amplitude rhythm each day in core body temperature. And what you should find is that around the time that you fall asleep, your body temperature starts to go down. So it's typically highest in the late afternoon, which is also 
generally the best time for strength and power exercise for that reason. But if you consume these calories later in the day, then you offset that decline in core body temperature. And that might be one reason that people find it harder to fall asleep. It will also tend to change activity in your autonomic nervous system, such that if you look, for example, at heart rate variability overnight, then it tends to be higher when people consume more of their calories early in the day, even when calories over the course of the day are controlled for. And then there are a few other things too. So one would be, as I mentioned earlier, that our digestive tracts are better prepared for food during the daytime. Another thing that I mentioned earlier was that insulin sensitivity, for example, will be lower during the nocturnal period. And one reason that seems to be the case is that melatonin, which is a hormone that's produced by our brains during darkness, tends to reduce glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. So if you consume lots of carbohydrates late in the day, then your body will have a more sluggish insulin response to those and therefore dispose of them less effectively than earlier. So those are a few different reasons. And of course, if you consume a very small number of calories late, then maybe that's not too much of an issue. But it still depends on the composition of those calories. So one more thing to add here is that caffeine, for example, is very disruptive to sleep for most people. And if you consume that too late in the day, then you're likely to take longer to fall asleep. But also your sleep quality will be lower. Your sleep will be more fragmented. You'll spend perhaps a slightly smaller proportion of your total sleep duration deeper stage of sleep which is particularly restorative for certain tissues it's when your body produces most of its growth hormone for instance which is important to remodeling connective tissues so regarding caffeine i would say cap your intake at two milligrams per kilogram of body mass per day and don't consume it any later than nine hours or so before bedtime although people do differ a lot in terms of how well they process caffeine mm -hmm. such that some people will metabolize it very quickly other people people who for example have fatty liver disease will process it very very slowly to the point where if they consume a cup of coffee today they still have caffeine in their bodies 24 hours from now you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah, I um, yeah, actually, I was gonna say because I have a, I got some genetic test that said it was a fast metabolizer, and I, I would agree with that in terms of when I can have my last cup. But which I I tried to avoid it in the afternoon just out of principles' sake because I I drink too much as it is, so I, I just try to like cap it there. Um, but I, I was gonna um, with what you were saying too, like so. Okay, so and I think this is where it gets important, or I think where. Uh, where, where the practicality of it, uh, I, I had a, a question like for coaches, for, for an athlete, like who say, who has mm. a good, um, a good existing body composition, you know, like are there benefits? And then obviously, you know, this is all important in the, like the diabetic and insulin sensitivity, but are there, yeah. are there benefits outside of just body composition for this type of stuff? Like you were just mentioning some of the points of sleep really to sleep, like general health mm. and well being. Yeah. The short answer is I think we can't say that for sure right now just because those studies of humans haven't really been done yet. But I suspect that that is the case for a few different reasons. So I think it's smart to give our digestive tracts a break each 24 hours, for example. So if somebody has digestive issues such as bloating or gas, then this type of time-restricted eating is something that many people find helpful anecdotally. But then there are some other factors too. So one is the circadian system itself. 
I mentioned earlier that the light-dark cycle is the most important time cue in synchronizing the clock in our brain, which primarily determines when we fall asleep and sleep until each day. But there are other clocks in our bodies, and all of those other clocks that exist outside of that master clock are called peripheral clocks. And those seem to be primarily set by our food intake each day. And for that reason, it makes sense to somewhat synchronize the patterns of resting and physical activity mm. with our patterns of fasting and eating too. And then there are probably some other benefits as well. But something to add is that much of this is modified by exercise training. And this hasn't been studied directly yet. But we know, for example, that doing high intensity exercise will tend to improve how well our bodies dispose of glucose because that type of skeletal muscle contraction will increase non-insulin mediated glucose uptake. So if you're an athlete and let's say that your training is imposed relatively late in your waking day, that's just when training times are and you have no say in the matter, mm -hmm. then consuming many of your calories around that training bout probably isn't such a big problem. But I would still recommend that your final meal of the day is relatively small compared to the others. Maybe you just want some protein to help you adapt to that particular exercise. And it depends on your upcoming training bouts and so on. But I think that you still want to try and perhaps put a relatively large number of calories before the bout and then after the bout, if you're training late in the day, keep that small. And one of the things that that is likely to benefit, I think, is sleep. And if you are training late in the day, then it's really important you do what you can to wind down as quickly as possible after that, such that your sleep isn't subsequently delayed and also made less restorative. Because there's been some work published recently which collated all of the different studies that have looked at the effects of late exercise on sleep. And long story short, in that instance, it doesn't seem like the exercise dramatically affected sleep, how long it took people to fall asleep and so on. But if you look at the individual studies, then studies that included higher intensity exercise and more damaging exercise. So if you compare running, for example, to cycling, running being more damaging, then there probably is an effect of training late in the day. And to add one more thing, we also know that exercise itself will shift the timing of our circadian rhythms. And just this year, one man from Monash University, Sean Kane, published some very nice work on this. And what he found was that during moderate intensity treadmill exercise, if you change the time at which people do that exercise, then you can shift the timing of their body's clock such that if they do it from about 7 to 10 a.m. or from about 1 p.m. to 4 p.m., then their body clocks will shift earlier and you therefore expect their, sh their sleep to shift earlier too. Mm. Whereas if they train from about 7 p.m. to about 10 p.m., then their body clocks will shift later. And what are the practical implications of that? Well, one of them is definitely getting over jet lag and understanding how to time your exercise to help you synchronize the new time zone faster. But another is maybe you train late in the day and you have to compete late in the day too, then it's important that you get used to training, competing at those times such that your performance at those times of day is optimized. 
So I went on a little bit of a tangent there, Joel, but I don't know if you want to jump in here. <laughs> no, all good. No, I, I know we'll get into the circadian rhythms and, and the training here in just a bit. Uh, and, and I think that's something that, uh, that's something that I've always thought of a lot too. And especially after reading some things early on in my career about it, I, um, one thing that I do want to kind of close out at least the, this, like the nutrition and metabolic rate and all that is I think that, mm-hmm. well, and, and you know, I talk about any, you know, any other benefits as if, you know, body composition isn't important because it is really important to a lot of sports, mm-hmm. especially, uh, and obviously, you know, this having worked in sprints or track and field and, and, uh, that it's, it's critical, like body power, you know, power to weight ratio and all that is a really mm-hmm. important aspect and of, of everything. And like, uh, but so you obviously a, a tour de France cyclist, you know, insane calorie consumption need, or like, mm-hmm. a or like, I don't know, someone who swims like the four I am or someone who just, it trains a lot. <clears throat> there's going to be a different, you know, spectrum of calorie. But let's say someone who's like, I know you have experience with track and field sprinters. I know a lot of mm. people on this show have worked with that population. Their workouts are intense, but not quite, you know, it's not like you're, you're not cycling the Tour de France. Sure. Um, so, so someone who's more of like a power athlete, uh, what, what are some ideas with that nutrition window? Like how might that shift or like a training day versus a non-training day for someone in who's not like, who doesn't have that huge calorie consumption, but does have days where they're certainly going to need more. Yeah. I, I would say that they still want to keep the times at which they eat consistent between training days and rest days. And there's been some nice work looking at this with respect to metabolic health in healthy young women. So we're not talking about a diseased population or anything like that. But in short, what it's shown is that when people consume regular meals at scheduled times, they tend to have they tend to burn more calories after consuming those meals. They tend to have better appetite regulation and better blood sugar regulation too. So I think they probably want to keep the times at which they eat consistent, whether it's a training day or a rest day. But certainly they can consume a higher number of calories on training days. And also they need to factor in the training bout itself regarding their peri-exercise nutrition. So if they're doing something which is quite glycogen depleting and they want to perform well in that exercise bout and recover well from it, so they want to replenish their glycogen as quickly as possible, then it makes sense to consume a large number of carbohydrates around that training bout, regardless of whether they're training late in the day. So I think regularity is key. Factor in training and the adaptations that you want to get from that training bout. But those people probably don't need to sweat too much about this stuff. With that said, there there is also reason to think that consuming relatively more calories early in the day is likely to be good for body composition too. So let's say that you are a winger in rugby and you want to be fast, you want to be powerful and you want to be lean as well. And right now you're carrying around three kilos more than you would like. In that instance, you might well find that shifting your calories a bit earlier in your day is good for your body composition and does help you shed some of that fat. And just to mention one more study, there was a very nice paper published six years ago that basically took overweight and obese women through two different conditions so each one was assigned to one of these two different conditions for 12 weeks and then one condition they had 50 percent of their calories at breakfast and the other condition had 50 percent of their calories at dinner but otherwise the composition of the food was the same so same number of calories each day same carbohydrates and so on and what they found is that when people consumed more of their calories at breakfast 
they lost more than twice as many inches off their waist. They lost more than twice as much body mass. And they also had greater improvements in their blood lipid and blood sugar regulation. So if right now your body composition isn't quite as good as you would like it to be, then I think it does still make sense to try and implement some of these things that we've learned from these chrononutrition studies in recent years. That's interesting. I, for some reason, and, and I, I, this isn't an area that I'm like in, in immensely well versed in in terms of just all around knowledge, but I, my like like the ketogenic diet, you know, or like or like the bulletproof mm. coffee, or the or I'm going to have high fat in the morning. I don't need to eat for a while. Like, does that? How does that? How does that play into all this? I mean, is that is that a factor to look at? I mean, I, I imagine the meals and the research study were a little bit more balanced. Like, if someone's doing that and they're trying to get their thermostat more towards a fat burning state like how any any thoughts on that yeah I, I do have a few thoughts on that and to summarize those thoughts i would say that that type of carbohydrate backloading that it's sometimes known as it was popularized a few years ago doesn't make that much sense to me and just to touch on a couple more reasons why beyond those that i mentioned if you look at all glucose tolerance so how well our bodies dispose of glucose after consuming it, that's probably about 17% higher in the biological morning than the evening. But also, there's been some work that's looked specifically at the effects of consuming carbohydrate-rich meals at different times of day. And there haven't been studies that have looked at these types of athletic population necessarily, but certainly in people who have impaired sugar metabolism, large carbohydrate-rich dinners tend to increase blood sugar responses to meals. So blood sugar regulation is worse when people put their carbohydrate-rich meals late in the day versus earlier in the day. And there's a lady at Cambridge, Katharina Kessler, who's done some nice work on that recently. So in summary, I, I think it still makes sense, generally speaking, to consume most of your calories and most of your carbohydrates specifically relatively early in the day but then around training depending on the adaptation that you want to get from the exercise bout you can certainly assign more of your carbohydrates to that time of day hmm. interesting yeah I, I just i'm just curious i've never really gone on gotten in too far into the um that rabbit hole myself um but i'm sure there's a lot of like maybe some individual like responses and characteristics too i've heard mm -hmm. like some people will be respond more favorably to keto than others but it's not the majority uh, and I'm, I'm not sure necessarily how the if there's any research on, on specific break, break anything you know down specifically with that or not but um yeah i'm just something i've always kind of been interested in because i i I'm, I'm never really sure exactly sure what to make that or if, you know, if an athlete is interested in something like that. But Yeah, well, I, I think it depends on the athlete. So I didn't really speak about Keith Jank diets there specifically. But maybe if somebody is an athlete in an aesthetic sport, such as gymnastics or something like that, where much of the exercise that they do doesn't deplete lots of glycogen and they're otherwise in good metabolic health, but they need to stay lean and they struggle with appetite regulation as it is, then something like a ketogenic diet might make sense for them. But for athletes who do bouts of high intensity exercise, I don't think it makes that much sense based on what we know to date to use a ketogenic diet in the long term. Because people speak about ketogenic diets as if they are 
if, as if they enhance fat oxidation and they turn people into these fat burning machines. But I think that the corollary of that is that they are carbohydrate oxidation impairing. So if you look, for example, at some of the enzymes that are involved in carbohydrate metabolism, such as pyruvate dehydrogenase, then during ketogenic diet, those are effectively downregulated. So when those people then reintroduce carbohydrates and they try to do so with a view to improving their ability to participate in those short-term sprints, then their bodies don't know what to do with those carbohydrates. They've had a variety of different adaptations at different levels in their system from the gut to their skeletal muscles, which probably mean that they're going to struggle to store those carbohydrates as glycogen and then use that glycogen to fuel their exercise. Maybe with a slightly longer reintroduction period, if they consume those carbohydrates over several days in a gradual, ramped, systematic way, then they can experience the benefits of going on a ketogenic diet with respect to fat oxidation while still getting some of those advantageous effects of consuming carbohydrates in terms of their sprint performance. But not many of those studies have been done to my knowledge. So I, I think it's an interesting subject, but I also think that people focus far too much on that at the moment, if I'm just being honest. And it's typical of the nutrition industry to see certain things rise in popularity at certain times and maybe the pendulum swings too far in one direction and then several years later it's probably swung too far in the other direction again and the last couple of years keto diets have been all the rage and i suspect that in a few years time they'll probably not receive nearly as much attention as they do now yeah i've heard i've i've heard that they aren't generally good for like increasing strength or power at all, or they, they elicit the reverse <laughs> in the athletes. Um, and that makes sense based off what you're saying there. I, uh, okay. So, so training times. So I, I, this is something I definitely wanted to get into. You mentioned it with jet lag, mm. body clocks, but like a question like, okay, so a lot of athletes would have something where they have to train. They, they might have to lift, you know, their schedule dictates. I have to lift at, six or seven a.m i'm gonna then have practice at three or four um mm. maybe the lifting has more breakdown than the practice from you had mentioned like that was kind of interesting i never heard that the difference between like cycling and 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 running and how much like mechanical damage is being done to the body mm. and timing but but just some general primers and like like athletes who have like two workouts in a day or or or, or which where where do we put want to put the mecha- the bigger like mechanical breakdown stimulus in the day. I, I know typically like people lift in the morning like sprint if they're doing both or run in the afternoon. But um, thoughts on that? Yeah, so two a day has not really been studied well to my knowledge so far. But certainly, what I can do is just describe what people have in general found with respect to different types of exercise and the influence of time of day on performance in those exercises. And then based on that, we can try and draw some conclusions about what might make sense for, for two a days. But if you look at strength and power exercise, that I mentioned earlier that core body temperature is highest in the late afternoon. And what seems to be the case is that strength and power follow the core body temperature rhythm. And that makes sense because if you think about the enzymes that are involved in substrate metabolism of things like glycogen then they will work faster at higher temperatures if you think about nerve conduction velocity then that will be faster at higher temperatures too 
the synovial fluid in our joints is more viscous at higher temperatures. Temperature is going to influence the viscoelastic properties of muscle tendon units. Just think about a rubber band. If you heat up that band, then it's going to change its elasticity. But with all of that said, the data do consistently show that strength of power performance is higher in the afternoon. But the question that follows really is whether training at that time of day is going to lead to larger improvements in strength and power over time. And there's one researcher in particular who's done some nice work on this, a Finnish researcher named Keho Hakinen. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of the surname, mm-hmm. but with that said, he's he's done a few different studies and largely looked at men and divided these people into morning or afternoon strength training for a period of several weeks. And what he's tended to find is that if anything, training the afternoon does lead to slightly greater improvements in those adaptations. But the effect is relatively small. And if you do strength and power exercise in the morning, then the morning to afternoon variation in strength and power performance will be smaller, as you might expect. So the timing of your exercise will influence when you are best set for that type of exercise. And the reality for many athletes and coaches is that their training times are enforced by scheduling issues and all sorts of different factors. So I think if people have strict control over their schedules and their training once a day and doing strength and power exercise, then it probably does make sense to train in the late biological afternoon. So maybe for most people, that's about 5 p.m. But of course, that's not necessarily realistic Mm -hmm. for all people and then to touch on endurance exercise the data on this are much more equivocal and there was a really nice paper published by christian kayokin who's a swiss researcher this year and what they did was they compared athletes vo2 maxes at six times a day on different days of the week and they looked at this diurnal variation in vo2 max so is VO2 max higher in the morning or lunchtime or afternoon, for example? And interestingly, what they found was that this diurnal variation in VO2 max was more than twice as high as the day-to-day variation in VO2 max. But VO2 max occurred at different times of day in different athletes, hmm. which sort of makes sense. And if you think about many endurance events, then perhaps one of the limitations to performance in those events is regulation of core body temperature. So maybe going out and doing those events when your core body temperature is near its peak is suboptimal. And perhaps earlier in the day might be conducive to higher performances, but really with that type of exercise, it seems to be dependent on the individual. So to summarize, I I think with respect to training adaptations, Strength and power training place in the afternoon is probably ideal. With respect to endurance exercise, it's less clear. I think if you're doing strength and power training in the morning, then it might make sense to have a longer warm-up before it. And one more thing to mention is team sports. And if you think about the motor skills and so on that are required for success in these sports, then these athletes really need a variety of different biomotor qualities. So think about soccer and people need to have relatively high cardiorespiratory fitness, but also they need to be quite fast over short periods of time, very agile. Obviously their 
coordination is excellent too. And there was some nice work by research at Liverpool John Moore's Uni in the UK more than a decade ago now. And they looked at performance in a bunch of soccer relevant tasks at different times of day. And in general, it seemed that the optimum was between about 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. because strength and power is higher at that time of day, but also things like dribbling time hmm. was higher at 8 p.m. And some measures of accuracy were higher at 4 p.m. than 8 a.m. in the morning. So for team sport athletes, whether you're a rugby player or a football player, I think the afternoon probably is prime time. Now, to finally circle back to your question about training twice a day, obviously if you're a strength and power athlete and you are doing two sessions in the day, both of which are relatively strength and power focused, so it's common for sprinters to do a track session and then to do a weight session also, both of those different sessions are largely anaerobic and for that reason you expect performance in each of them to be highest in the afternoon so i think it, it depends on a few different factors and one of those is going to be in this instance the nature of the strength training if it's quite high load high volume strength training and it's going to be quite damaging taxing to the central nervous system and peripheral nervous system then doing that in the morning probably will quite strongly affect your performance in the afternoon and when I say affect, I mean negatively affect. Mm -hmm. So it really depends what you're optimizing for and what you want to be freshest for. But going back to a point I made earlier, I think having a long warm-up in the morning makes sense. It's really important to try and maximize recovery between those sessions and twice-a-day sessions. And you haven't touched on this, but one potential way of doing that, especially for people who are short on sleep, is to have a brief nap around lunchtime and especially if somebody's been restricting their sleep for a period of time, that seems to improve strength and power performance. That's based on some more work that's been published recently by those same researchers at Liverpool John Moores University. But yeah, it depends on the nature of the session. So I'm sorry not to give you a very clear answer on that. And when I was coaching myself, as in when I was working as a coach myself, I tended to have my athletes sprint first and then left after but we never had to have those sprint sessions particularly early in the morning certainly mm -hmm. there was never any overlap with things like sleep times or anything like that on the weekends we trained at the earliest time but that was still 11 a.m or so and then a few hours later the athletes would head to the weight room so i don't know if you want to pick up on anything in there joel you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah, no, that was really good stuff, Greg. I actually made me think a little bit of a. Uh, I used to print out all these like I used to have folders full of all this like track and field literature, a lot of like Russian stuff that came from like the Soviet sport press type type thing. And I, and I remember what one will always stick with me that I read, and it was like how they arranged. Basically, it was like if you did three sessions a day, because you know if it's all you do and you can train whatever you want. Or I, I think this was four speed power, and it was something like I know for a fact it was this. The first training session today was like a lighter aerobic wake up type thing, like a w extended mm -hmm. warm up, and then this power session was not until like later in the day. And I think they then they might have had a cool down session after that or something. But it was that like like just like what you were saying, like saving the the power till later and the, 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 what you are doing in the morning being not very nervous system intensive. 
And mm-hmm. I feel like that kind of fits with, I like doing this like little, like it's like a tap test where you, you tap your finger into the screen as many times as you can in 10 seconds yeah. or t- the space bar five seconds. And I know I'll always gain like a, like a tap or two as the day goes on. Mm. And I actually had a team, well, I actually had a team switch um, their, their summer lifting time was 7 a.m. And now their, their fall lifting time is now at three to four. So I'm actually, and we, we've been doing the tap, the tap test. And so now actually now I'm going to go and see how that impacted everyone's average score. It'll, it'll be really interesting. Um, I don't know if I had enough data. We only collected like for like five, six sessions, but so I don't know if the statistical power will be. Yeah, there, I'm there, have, there have been studies looking at things like finger tapping and also reaction times, and they are consistently higher in the biological afternoon. So that makes sense. It, again, it largely follows core body temperature, actually. Yeah. yeah. In- interesting. So I wonder, I mean, yeah, the correlation isn't causation, but I wonder how closely like the tap test is also related to core body temperature. Well, I mean, I know temperature is important for performance. I remember I did a podcast with Anthony Blazovich uh, about a year, mm. year and a half ago, and he was just talking how like temperature is really the most important aspect of the warm up. Like that is mm-hmm. the single most important adaptation or, or or part of it all that gets you ready to be better and so i mean maybe it would make sense <clears throat> yeah I, it's funny actually i remember one of the athletes that i used to coach lamented me for having him keep on as many clothes as possible <laughs> until as close to the gun went off as possible and there was some great footage of him competing at the nationals in the under 23s and he was there on the starting line on one of the hottest days of the year wearing this massive coat and he ran a BB. So That's awesome. He, he said, Greg, I hate you. But at the same time, I think there's something to this. Yeah. Yeah. It almost makes you think about maybe possibilities for like, you know, colder climate sprinters. I mean, obviously here in the States, the, the fastest three States are also the sunniest ones for the most part, you know, like, and, and yeah. obviously like, you know, Jamaicans and, and all that stuff is, um, you know, I, I feel like if you don't have that, the least, I mean, you don't get the sunlight as much, but at the least, you know, maybe you can capture that temperature by just packing on the layers and, and, and having yeah. that be a regular part of your practice. And it's, it's probably good for things like injury too. And yeah. I know that you will have covered this on your podcast before, but obviously there's been plenty of work looking at things like heated leggings and performance in strength and power exercise. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that the GB cycling team has used over the years to improve their performance in short cycling sprints and track cycling. So there's plenty of evidence to show the benefits of that type of approach. And certainly for injury risk too, it makes lots of sense. If you're a strength and power athlete to keep your core body temperature high around sessions. Yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, yeah. I, and I like how that, that yeah, fits into some of the things that have been on the podcast before and how things always come together. Um, so a few, we, we don't have a lot of time left, but I, I really did want to cover two things. Um, hopefully we can, you know, you, hopefully you have enough time here to explain them to their due at least. And, and I know if nothing else, some practical applications, but the things, the two things I really wanted to pick your brain on before we are done was, was chronotypes or sleep types and then, um, artificial light. Cause I think those are both two things. And the artificial light one I think is probably, maybe the bigger one with what modern athletes deal with on some levels, at least for us to like be able to like quickly be like, Oh yeah, of course. Right. But like, um, could you uh, maybe just briefly touch on different sleep types, uh, and, and what that means for athletes or what we say to athletes or, or, or if there's any help that we can steer them towards, cause we all know sleep's important, obviously. 
are critical. And um, so, yeah, how how do we um, how do we navigate different sleep types and and responses there? Yeah, you mentioned chronotype there, and just to define what that is, the scientific definition is something like the differences between people in the expression of behaviors that are regulated by the circadian system and one of those of course is the sleep-wake cycle and we therefore have this large different spectrum of people from the morning larks to the night owls and in the modern environment the difference in the timing of those people is very large whereas if you take people and you place them into more natural conditions that are reminiscent of those in which our forebears evolved then the differences between people become much smaller. How people go camping for a period of several days, for example, and the person who went to bed earliest at the start will still go to bed earlier than the others, but the difference between that earliest person and the latest person will be much smaller. So much of that is a product of our modern environments, and as you mentioned, things like exposure to artificial light, but also insufficient light during the daytime from natural sources, namely the sun. So the question really is, what implications does this have for training? And in short, there hasn't been much research that's looked at this specifically as yet. But for all the reasons that I mentioned earlier, I think it it does make sense to try and optimize things like training according to times of day at which your body is best set for training. And There are many athletes who have training at designated times and they find it really hard because maybe they go to bed late and they wake up late naturally, but they have to be up at 7 a.m. for practice and they would rather be in bed until midday. And as a result, they go to bed early and they can't fall asleep when they go to bed and their sleep quality is poor and they wake up to an alarm and they feel miserable and they don't perform as well in training as they would like and they don't adapt as well to that training either. So for people who have training times that overlap with their preferred sleep times, it's really about whether they can shift the times at which they go to bed and wake up each day so that they are training and competing at times at which their bodies are better set for the exercise. And in short, to help people shift their sleep timing earlier, which is most commonly the case just in the If you look at how sleep timing changes over the course of one's lifespan, then people reach their latest around the end of adolescence. So perhaps 19 and a half years of age for girls on average and 21 years of age for boys. And then people get earlier and earlier until old age. So they therefore often have to conform to times of day that are imposed by horrible coaches like you, Joel. <laughs> yes, 5.30 a.m. workouts. <laughs> yeah, and they therefore lose sleep as a result. So for the for these people who want to shift their sleep earlier, there are a few things for them to focus on. So first is those guidelines that I mentioned earlier regarding caffeine intake. If it's possible, I think it's actually best for people to stop consuming all stimulants if they want to go to bed earlier. Because caffeine both delays the timing of the circadian system but also it it antagonizes a substance named adenosine which basically acts on certain receptors in the brain to promote sleepiness 
And by blocking the interaction of adenosine with those receptors, there's a weaker sleepiness signal. And for that reason, caffeine is negatively affecting sleep in these people via two mechanisms. So if people can cut their stimulants entirely or otherwise reduce their stimulants, maybe they start consuming decaf coffee later in the day, for example, or maybe they are just more stringent with their caffeine timing, then that's going to be a good thing. But the most important thing really is to focus on patterns of light exposure. And if these people can expose themselves to more light within two hours or so of waking up, then that's going to help them shift their clocks earlier. The best type of light at this time would be daylight because the intensity of light you're exposed to outdoors on a sunny day at midday can be something like 300 times higher than the intensity of light that you will get indoors at the same time in a normally lit room. So the difference is enormous. It's just that the human visual system isn't very good at picking up on that. If they can't go outside at those times of day, then one strategy they can use is to use a light therapy lamp. And there are lots of these are available on websites like Amazon, but you want to pick one that emits at least 10,000 lux. Lux is the unit of light intensity. And perhaps these athletes could have one of those somewhere in their flats or wherever they're living and use those at this time for at least 30 minutes and stay close to the lamp at that time too. And that will help start to shift the central clock in the brain in these athletes earlier. And then the corollary to this is that at night, these people need to systematically reduce their exposure to light within about two to four hours of their planned bedtime. And that can entail a few different things, but obvious ones are dimming the lights if you have dimmers, turning off some lights indoors if you don't have dimmers. If you use a laptop, you can use f.lux or iris. If you use an iPhone, you can use night shift mode. If you use an Android phone, you can use twilight. All these different apps will draw blue wavelength light specifically out of your device screens. And that's important because it's the blue wavelengths of light that most strongly affect the timing of the circadian system. But also, if you can, you want to reduce the brightness settings on these devices at this time too. And then otherwise, these people want to ensure that they are in a relaxed frame of mind shortly before sleep to help them fall asleep. So guidance really relates to caffeine consumption and then also modifying patterns of light exposure. And for people who need to shift their sleep in the opposite direction, let's say that you're a boxer and you are competing at midnight thereabouts and as the fight approaches you're starting to train closer and closer to that time that's going to help you shift your body's clock later but also you will want to reduce your exposure to light in the morning so maybe that might entail wearing blue blocking glasses in this instance because or sunglasses if you're outside because that will reduce retinal light exposure specifically and then in the evening perhaps in the two to four hours before your planned bedtime you actually want to increase your exposure to light i say two to four hours because if it's too close to bedtime then that's going to interfere with your sleep quality but there is a sweet spot in that two to four hour range where if you use a light therapy lamp or if you're outside during daylight that will help you shift your clock later and then regarding caffeine, these people don't need to be so judicious about caffeine. 
but I still wouldn't say go ahead and consume loads of caffeine. It's going to help you shift your body's clock later because it will still impair sleep quality. So I think the main implication of an understanding of your chronotype is how it interacts with your training. And if you can understand how to shift your chronotype and your sleep timing, bearing in mind that chronotype does have a genetic basis. So if you're an extreme morning type or an extreme evening type, then you shouldn't be boxing and you shouldn't be rowing respectively because the times of your training sessions and competitions just aren't going to be suited to your chronotypes. And there's actually some sort of a sort of the process whereby most athletes end up in the sports that correspond to their chronotypes. If you're an elite endurance athlete, then you're probably not going to be a total night owl. And if you're a boxer, you're probably not going to be in the first centile of larkness, if that makes sense. Yeah. So those are, those are some practical strategies that people can use. And if you want to assess their chronotype, they can do so. There are validated questionnaires available. One is named the MCTQ, the Munich Chronotype Questionnaire Test. And they used to be a website named the WP, which had a free assessment, but I think that website is down right now. But I don't think that people need to worry too much about where their chronotype falls relative to their peers. They will know if there's overlap between their training times and their sleep. And all they need to do is know how they can intervene to modify their sleep timing accordingly, such that they're now training at times at which they don't feel terrible. Yeah, right on. I uh yeah, I really like all those apps and stuff with the blue light. I'm I'm definitely um I'm definitely interested in that. And with with the light too, like this is I don't I don't know what research or just maybe what what you think about this, but like mm. I've I'm just I'm just this is the end of one, but like I've I've never had a hard time falling asleep even if I stay up late on the computer. But I feel like it's more of a quality of sleep thing, like like mm-hmm. more likely to wake up in the middle of the night or maybe didn't sleep as well. I mean, if if people are, because I feel like if an athlete is like falling asleep anyways, like, at, and they don't have a problem with it, I mean, is that like, or, or, or is it just a quality that mess with your circuit? Is it there's something else that gets messed with with the sleep cycle outside just falling asleep? Yeah. So, light can not only shift the timing of sleep, but it has a variety of different effects on our bodies. And one of those is an acute alerting effect, which is independent of its effects on the circadian system. And there are various different ways that you can study this. But if you look, for example, at people who are exposed to artificial light at night in their bedroom, then they tend to report more fragmented sleep. Their sleep tends to be lower quality, and that can have some corresponding negative consequences. But there are also a host of benefits to exposure to light that are very rarely touched on. Perhaps they get more airtime now than they once did, but to touch on a few of these one of course is vitamin d synthesis and if you have very dark skin then you're going to need more light exposure to get the vitamin d that you need and that's important to lots of different things from regulation of pain and the immune system to bone health another is potentially effects on body composition there was some very interesting work published by a man named peter light which is best name ever, nominative determinism. <laughs> and he looked at the effects of exposing fat cells with the epidermis intact to blue light and found that when you do that, you actually stimulate the breakdown of fat in those cells. So it might have some metabolic effects too. Another is that the light that we're exposed to, if it's of a certain wavelength, 
probably influences mitochondrial function. And people will have heard of photobiomodulation, but that's the idea behind some of those devices. It can influence some of the complexes involved in the electron trans transport chain, which can influence energy production in turn. But then there are effects on mood, and there has been some work looking at physical performance too. And Christian Kiyokin, who I mentioned earlier, has done some of this work, and he's published a really interesting paper a few years ago, which basically looked at the effects of light exposure and cycling performance. And they had a couple of conditions. So one was a very bright light condition, and the other was just moderate light exposure, the type of light that you get in a, in a typical room. And he basically found that when these athletes are exposed to more high-intensity blue light before a time trial, they perform substantially better. So actually getting lots of light exposure around the time of competition is likely to be a very good thing for, for performance on a few different levels. And one of those, of course, will relate to alertness and cognition and making good decisions. But what implications does, does this have for us? One is to spend more time outside during the daytime. And if you do that, that's going to buffer against the negative consequences of being exposed to small amounts of artificial light at night. Because the cells in our eyes that register light keep track of our exposure to light over time. They keep a kind of light history, if you like. And therefore, if you get lots of daytime light, you won't be as adversely affected by using your phone late at night or whatever. Not that you should be doing that. You absolutely shouldn't. And then at night, I gave you those tips earlier related to reducing your light exposure in anticipation of bedtime, but then you of course want to look at your bedroom itself too. So if, for example, you have curtains that aren't very good at blocking out light from outside, then you should consider using blackout blinds. Alternatively, or in addition, you could use a sleep mask at the same time. And then there's the question of whether there are devices in your room that emit a light that you can get rid of. So some people have these alarm clocks that emit blue light and that even though it's a small amount of light, might well disrupt your sleep, especially if you haven't spent much time outdoors during the day. And something to mention here is that the degree to which artificial exposure, artificial light at night exposure influences our body's clocks varies massively between people. So I touched on that hormone melatonin earlier. There was some work published this year that looked at the effects of ecologically valid, so the type of light that you would get in the real world, exposure, shortly before bedtime, its effects on the, the suppression of melatonin synthesis. And basically, if you compare the person who's most affected to exposure to light to the person who's least affected, then there was about a 60-fold difference in the degree to which light at night suppressed melatonin. Wow. So that's an enormous difference. And for that reason, some people really need to pay close attention to it, whereas for other people, it's not going to be quite such a big problem. So get rid of blue alarm clocks. If you have an alarm clock, Consider using a sunrise alarm clock that comes on and shines some nice light in your room in the morning rather than waking you up with an annoying alarm clock tone. And if people put those tips to use, then I think they're likely to sleep better, but also hopefully perform better. Yeah, man, how much do I wish I just didn't have to have an alarm clock and could just wake up with the sun shining in my face every day? That'd be amazing. Um, well, anyways, that's all, that's all the time I have for the show today, Craig. But really, really informative and good answers. And um, just really appreciate all you have to offer. 
um, especially in your uh, in your transition from the sprint world and and uh, now into so many other practical and helpful things that I think all of us coaches and everybody really can use. So thank you for your time today, man. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks, Joel. All right. That does it for another show. Thanks for being here today. Appreciate you guys. Appreciate you guys listening. So much fun to add all these diverse topics and all these sectors of human performance. And that's an important one because we, you know, it's awesome to talk about training and turnover relief in detail and try to find all these new ends of the spectrum. But we can't ignore how we are meant to operate as humans and how that impacts our ability to recover from the training we do. I hope you enjoyed that show. I loved it. If you enjoyed this show as well, this podcast, what we're doing, you could totally help us out by leaving us a rating review on iTunes. We'd definitely appreciate that. Our Finally, our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, great blog, great store. We appreciate them and what they do. So support them and visit their website at simplyfaster.com. All right, signing off for this week. We'll see you guys next Thursday for another episode. Have a good one.